Well, as I said, we're continuing this eyewitness news uh, series looking at the book of Mark, and we're looking this weekend at Mark chapter 9, the mountaintop experience, the transfiguration. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever climbed a 14er? Raise your hand if you've ever climbed a 14er. There's quite a lot of us. Well done. How many of you have climbing or 14er on your bucket list? It's something you would quite like to do. Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you couldn't give a rip and uh, <laughs> you'd rather just stay at home and eat a bucket of chicken? How many of you are, are like that? Okay. Well, Whatever your response is to that, we're going to go to a mountain today, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. There are three possible locations for this historical event that took place, the Transfiguration. One is uh, Mount Hermon, uh, 9,200 feet high, currently on the border of Syria, within Syria. I say currently, of course, that doesn't mean the mountain has relocated. Uh, it just means the geography has changed over the years. Uh, and then there's Mount uh, Sinai, uh, 7,500 feet high, uh, but probably not, although some people thought so, probably not the location of this. Uh, most people believe that the transfiguration happened on Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor. Uh, Mount Tabor is more like a foothill in Colorado terms, 1,800 feet. And uh, since the third century of church history, it's been believed that the transfiguration happened there. And it was to this mountain, or a mountain, that Jesus took three of his closest friends, Peter, James, and John. And the transfiguration happened. Uh, Dr. Luke gives us more information. He tells us that they went there to pray. And he also tells us that the disciples got sleepy, which kind of encourages me. How many of you recognize that occasionally prayer and sleep go together? Anyone <laughs> honest enough to admit that? That can, that can happen. But what they didn't realize was that one of the most epic adventures or episodes, I should say, in the history of the cosmos was about to unfold before them. So let's, let's read Let's look at this. Mark chapter 9, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Uh, last weekend, I mentioned the Olympics and how much... I uh, enjoyed uh, watching the Olympics, at least on TV. And one of my favorite moments was definitely in the opening ceremony when Her Majesty the Queen became a Bond girl. That was quite an epic moment in the history of the British monarchy. Uh, we've never had a queen who became a Bond girl before. And uh, she delivered her line and then pretended to jump out of a helicopter. It was kind of cool, I think. Uh, James Bond, he's the quintessential British hero, really, that incredible phrase, Bond. James Bond. 
doesn't work for me, does it? I can't do it, really. I mean, he's just an incredible guy. He's got this vast array of high-tech weaponry available. Every time he gets on a train, he ends up on the roof of the train, duking it out with someone with stainless steel teeth. I mean, he is just amazing. He certainly has questionable and dubious ethics, but he is, he's an amazing uh, quintessential British hero. Of course, the classic American superhero, uh, he's got special powers, and uh, you'll recognize him immediately as you complete this phrase. Is it a bird? Is it a... No, it's... <laughs> He's Clark Kent. As long as there's a phone booth available to change in, the world is safe. It's kind of scary because with cell phones, the phone booths are dying out, so we need to be worried about that. And this Superman guy is a bit strange. He wears blue pantyhose, so he obviously needs prayer. But he's Superman. There is a danger when we come to transfiguration of thinking something similar about Jesus because, and we're going to do some theological work here, on the Mount of Transfiguration, the true glory of Christ was revealed as he experiences transfiguration, a better phrase or a better word would be metamorphosis. Just as Moses encountered the glory of God on the mountain in Exodus 19, so Peter, James, and John suddenly get a staggering glimpse of who Jesus really is. More than an itinerant rabbi, a clever sage, a socio-political provocateur, a subversive wisdom teacher, suddenly they realize that he is the cosmic Lord of all human history. He is God's beloved anointed son. He is fully God, fully man. Have you ever been to the movies where you're sitting there waiting for the movie to start, your, your fist plunged into the hot tub of popcorn, and then suddenly the screen widens, and you think, wow. That's exactly, brothers and sisters, what happens on the mountain, because Peter has affirmed earlier, you are the Messiah, but he had all kinds of tiny visions of what Messiah meant, a political Messiah. And now the screen widens. Wow! This is who Jesus is. But there is a danger in this moment. The danger in this moment is that we think of Jesus as being some kind of superman, not quite man. God with skin on, I've heard preachers describe him as. It's poor theology. The early church wrestled with a heresy called docetism, an ancient heresy that suggested that Jesus wasn't really a man, he just looked like a man. And now I believe that we struggle with a similar problem, and it matters as I'll share in a moment, because we have been used to countering a hundred years of liberal theology that tried to undercut the divinity of Jesus, and in pendulum swing reaction, we sometimes affirm his divinity and lose sight of his humanity. I want to say it again. Christ is fully God, fully man. And that means he came as a man, not a superman. It was tough for him in the wilderness. Let's not get the idea that 40 days and 40 nights was easy and that somehow he could have done 40 weeks or 40 months or 40 years. He lived as a man. He experienced hunger, his body aged, he was thirsty, he knew pain, sorrow, tiredness, joy, pressure, tension, rejection, fear, anger, all of the full gamut of 
human emotions. He laid aside his attributes as God. He was not omnipresent when he came here. He had to walk places. He was not all-knowing. He asked questions, not just to be, to be cute, but because he wanted to know the answer. And he didn't know everything. There were moments of supernatural revelation. He didn't know the hour of his return. He came as a man. And he, therefore, knows exactly what it feels like to live on this planet. He was tempted in exactly the same way that we are tempted. Hebrews 2, he had to be made like his brothers in every way because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. If Jesus was playing the God card, then his temptation means nothing to us. But it means everything to us because, get this, Jesus did life on this planet in exactly the same way that we are called to do life on this planet through the power of the Holy Spirit. Which is why Dr. Luke repeatedly in chapters 3 and 4 talk about Jesus being filled with the Spirit. Philippians describes him laying aside his majesty. But we still, we're still nervous about this, even though this is orthodox, classic Christian theology. The church affirmed this in A.D. 457 at the Council of Chalcedon. I'll tell you how, how much this, our thinking has been corrupted. I was at a conference one time, and the speaker uh, said that Jesus would have needed to use the bathroom when he was on this earth. You know, you eat and drink, there are natural consequences to that. And, and some people got really offended, this is blasphemous. Our Lord using the, what do we think he did for 33 years? <laughs> and the very fact that we get nervous about that is because we are still suffering from a Greek platonic hangover, which suggests that the physical is somehow inappropriate, and that only the spiritual matters. And you say, what's all this got to do with my Monday morning? Everything. Because if we don't get this right, we'll always be trying to run away from being human. Listen, God doesn't want to make you more spiritual. He wants to make you more healthily human, which includes your spirituality. He's not only interested in when you read your Bible and pray. He's interested in the whole of your life. He understands what it means to be tempted. Because you know what? There is a human body in heaven right now. Sometimes we ask the question, what would Jesus do? Why don't we ask the question, what's Jesus doing now? I'll tell you what Jesus is doing now. When he died, he died as a human being. When he rose again, he rose as a human being. When he ascended to heaven, he went as a human being. And now he dwells in a human body, which is utterly different because it is a glorified body, but it is the first fruits of what will happen to us. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father fully God and fully man. It's important that we understand that if we are going to live as God intended us to, as healthy human beings. Now, I, I look around and I sense fear and terror in your heart, not because of any theological struggles, but because here we are and we've had this much of the sermon and we have yet to reach the first point. <laughs> and I'm rather concerned about that too. So... Let's move on. What else can the transfiguration teach us? Well, first of all, it teaches us that every, everyone's experience of God is unique. He knows, what you, he knows you, and he knows what you need. Everyone's experience of God 
is unique. He knows you, and he knows what you need. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. Would you think with me for a moment about these three? Peter, James, and John. They're the only ones that Jesus gave new names to. He gave a nickname to Peter and Sons of Thunder to James and John. So there's something special there. Only these three were allowed at the transfiguration. Only these three witnessed the raising of Jairus' daughter. Only these three were called into the inner sanctum of Gethsemane. Only these three had a conversation on Mount Olivet about the second coming. These three seem to have been separated off for special moments of revelation. And Peter wrote about this moment. He obviously needed to experience this. Second Peter 1. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. He remembered. John 1, as John writes, probably not specifically about this, but he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. This is fantastic. Peter, James, and John get the front row seats. What about the other nine? If I'd have been one of the other nine, I'd have been ticked. These guys come down from the Mount of Transfiguration and they, they're, they're, they're just full of all that's been going on. And the others go, well, that's great for you, isn't it? But I, I didn't get a ticket. You see, everyone's different. God knows what we need and our Christian experiences and revelations will not be the same. That doesn't mean that we create our own religion. It just means that everyone's experience of Christian faith is, is different. But we can compare. Why does God always speak to them and not me? Why don't I feel the same way that they feel? Or why wasn't I saved the same way? Maybe you were raised in a Christian home, and then you hear someone stand up and they say on January the 23rd, 1984, I gave my life to Christ. And you never had that moment. Because you were always taught to love Jesus, and you always have. Actually, according to a recent survey in Christian churches, 69% of the people didn't have a day or moment they could identify, but they were raised to follow Christ, and they grew into that love and knowledge of him. That doesn't mean that, that there are moments of crisis. My point is, what matters is not how we come to Christ, but that we come to Christ. But we compare ourselves, or, or we think, if only I had a dramatic testimony like that, like that other guy. Does anyone remember that wonderful book, The Cross and the Switchblade, by David Wilkson? Anyone remember that? And I remember reading that, the story of Nicky Cruz, and uh, such a, such a, 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 a kind of a difficult life and a violent life he'd had. And he waves a knife in front of David Wilkinson's face. And he says, and David Wilkinson says, if you, if you were to cut me in a thousand pieces, every piece would cry out, God loves you. And I read that and I thought, if that was me, I'd say, buddy, if you just nick my skin with that knife, every part of me will scream like a hysterical schoolgirl. But we kind of want the dramatic testimony. Why can't my testimony be like that? And so I've heard people give their testimonies. They say, yes, I, I came to know the Lord when I was six. And all went well. Years went by. I gradually drifted into a life of sin, immorality, and debauchery. 
And then at the age of nine, I came back to the Lord. <laughs> Stop comparing. Stop comparing. God knows what you need, and every person's experience is different. Secondly, God is holy. God is holy and yet calls all of us to pay our, plot, our part in his story. He's holy and calls all of us to play our part in his story. Look at verse 3. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. And Matthew compares this, this moment of, uh, of, of revelation as being like the brilliance of the sun and Luke like a flash of lightning, and Mark, it just amuses me, he compares this with being like super bleached laundry. <laughs> it's kind of bizarre. It sounds like some kind of soap powder commercial. But what they're trying to do in these various descriptions is, is let us know this was epic. This was awesome. And it compares with the encounter that Moses had with God on the mountain in Exodus 24. But there's something I want you to see. In Exodus 24, when the glory of God was revealed, Moses was told, only you can come close and the people need to stay down at the bottom of the mountain because God's presence was available in the Old Testament but limited. But now the glory of God is revealed in Christ, and get this, he walks down the hill a few minutes later with his friends. Isn't that great? That God is holy and wants to hang out with, if I may put it in those terms, and partner with ordinary people like us. And then notice that Moses and Elijah appear. And Moses had been dead for 1,400 years and Elijah had been gone for 900, so what's going on? What's going on here is there's a connection to the big story. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. It was important that the disciples realize this is part of the big story of God. Brothers and sisters, that's why we need to dig deeper into Scripture. That's why Wednesday night is a great idea. This new series we've just started, Kay and I came along last Wednesday evening, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It's great stuff. Maybe you don't normally come. Come along. Classes that we've got available. Matt Hickey is just starting a class on uh, responsible uh, Christian citizenship. So many classes that are available. Let's, let's dig deeper that we are people of the story. And then thirdly, thirdly, let's realize that much as we'd like to, much, much as we'd like to, we can't live on the mountaintop. Much as we'd like to, we can't live on the mountaintop. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put out three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. How many of you noticed the tents when you were coming in here today? Just raise your hand if you noticed those, and, and you were nudging each other, and you were saying, what's, what's with the tents? And maybe you asked one of our lovely greeters, what, what, what's with the tents? And they didn't tell you. And the reason they didn't is because we didn't tell them because preaching should provoke imagination. And we wanted your imagination to be stirred before the service even began. And there's a tent on the platform here today. Well, you see, what was happening 
is that Peter was awestruck. This was amazing. It was terrifying. It was wonderful. So he said, let's stay here. Let's build some tabernacles, some tents. Let's stay here in the moment of excitement. Let's camp here. When I was in England over the summer, I was, much of my time was spent preaching and teaching at summer festivals. The British, what happens is when summer arrives, which is normally July 23rd at about 10 a.m. for two hours, <laughs> British Christians converge upon these huge festivals. Some of them are 60,000 strong. Three weeks ago, I was speaking at one of those uh, about 10,000 people there, morning and evening. We worshipped for five days. It was great. I went from speaking at one festival to another. But I'm going to be ever so honest with you here. I'm going to take a real risk. At one point, uh, I, I, I nudged Kay, my wife, and I said, Honey, I'm exhausted with being this excited. I can't keep up because it was always, we're so excited and so thrilling. It's so amazing to, to walk with Jesus. Yes, it is, and no, it isn't. Let me make it clear. To follow Jesus is the most wonderful thing. It's what you were born for. But being with Jesus is not always exhilarating. Being with Jesus in his life on the earth was not always exhilarating. It was exciting at times. Corpses came to life. Demon-possessed people cried out. Blind eyes opened, heady, exhilarating stuff. He's never dull. He's always intriguing, fascinating, interesting. But there were seasons when it was tough and boring and hard. And they fell asleep in Gethsemane. Gethsemane wasn't exciting. Welcome to the Garden of Gethsemane. Oh, they fell asleep. In fact, it got so tough on one occasion... People were talking about leaving Jesus. And he said to his friends, are you going to leave too? And they said, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, suppose we better stick with you. Sometimes it's not exciting. That's why I believe that we need more boring churches. <laughs> I'm going to start a new movement. The International Federation of Tedious Christian Fellowships. Say, so what do you mean, Jeff? I mean, how can that be? Albert Einstein was right. Jesus is the luminous Nazarene. How, how can, what do you mean boring? What I mean is this. I don't want to be part of a church that's addicted to excitement. I don't want to be part of a church, and I believe this is true of us, where we're, we're just together as long as the goosebumps are around, where we have to jump higher and have another bigger encounter. I want to be part of a church where we can cry together and walk through boring seasons and where there are times when we just get together and we worship and we pray and we hear God's word preached and then we go home and eat dead chicken. It's just, you know, we just... Because there's too many Christians who are endlessly floating around on a safari looking for excitement. And the strange thing is, if people said that in a marriage, our response would be different. If we went to the marriage retreat and I said, yeah, Kay and I are together as long as there's excitement. But the moment the excitement fades, I believe the Lord is going to lead me elsewhere. <laughs> you know what you'd say? You'd say, grow up. Grow up. Get a life. You signed up to a covenant here. 
He didn't sign up just for endless excitement, just a bit of maturity. And yet when Christians say that, yes, the Lord, he says, leading me on to better pastures, we get impressed. We need to say to each other, grow up. Walk through the boring times, the difficult times, the struggles, as well as the times of excitement. Do we need to hear that? Do we need to hear that in church life sometimes? Do we need to hear that in our marriage? Sir, are you right now thinking about abandoning all common sense in the relentless pursuit of another moment of excitement? Fourthly, God is an incredible encourager. God is an incredible encourager. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. This was the second time that this had happened to Jesus. Do you remember at baptism, the father had cried out, this is my beloved son. And now, just before the cross, the father says again, I love my son. What's your God like? Is he encouraging? I remember back in high school, I got a few reports where it, my, my parents weren't thrilled. Red pen, C minus, could do better. Lucas needs to engage himself. Sometimes I feel like I approach my relationship to God like that. Do you? That whatever you do, it's almost going to get a, it's always going to be a C minus. Yes, not bad. And the God who is revealed here is the God who tears the heavens apart and says, this is my son. I love him. What's your God like? And then what are we like? Are we encouraging people? Or are we people who love to catch people doing something naughty? Naughty. <laughs> we know the power of encouragement. Dick Foth was telling me this morning that he's got an encouragement file. When he gets something right and someone writes to him, he puts it in a file. He said the file is pretty thin, but he said it's... Uh, <laughs> just kidding. I had an experience uh, this week with encouragement. I've not been sleeping well. I, two nights ago, I was awake. I was in my study from 3 a.m. to 5.30 a.m. because I couldn't sleep. I was working on this message. You can probably tell. And uh, I was flicking through a book. Uh, it was written by an internationally famous theologian. And I was flicking through this book, and I realized how much this particular book has been formative in my own theological development and understanding. I'm so grateful for that particular book. I also realized that the man who wrote it 10 years ago was uncovered in two moral failures, lost his position as the head of a major seminary, uh, lost his ministry, his marriage. And I'm sitting there looking at this book, and I, I just felt this nudge to track him down and encourage him. He's, he went through a pathway of restoration. He's back in ministry now. He's done the right things. With Google, you can track people down in about 90 seconds. I found his church. I sent him an email. Dear sir, you don't know me. I am not weird, and I am not a stalker. Well, I'm not a stalker. <laughs> I just want to tell you that your work has impacted me over the years. I know that you have walked through many, many shadow lands, but I wanted to write to thank you and encourage you 
and pray that you will know the embrace of God's grace today. God bless you. Didn't expect to get a response. I've had two. The first one four days ago. Dear Jeff, thank you for your email, which was so timely. I've just got back from vacation, and I have been agonizing over this question. Have I achieved anything in my ministry? Your email arrived. I wrote the book while studying at university in Scotland, and so to hear from a British person that it had made an impact there was like a sweet completion to my soul. I cried. I got another one this morning on the way here. It landed in my phone. When I got here, I opened it up. Another one, just the grace and kindness. Encouragement can change people's days. God is a God of encouragement. Well, the last thing, the last thing, fifthly, is that faith grows when we stop talking and start listening to Jesus. Faith grows when we stop talking and start listening to Jesus. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Imagine what it was like for Peter, James, and John, because look, dudes, there is, there's Elijah over there. And there's, <laughs> there's Moses. Somebody asked me recently if you could have lunch with any person from history, but not someone from the Bible, if you could have lunch with them, who would it be? And I said, I said, I would like to have lunch with Henry VIII as long as he's in a good mood. <laughs> it's Moses. I, I want to get over there and say, hey, excuse me, Moses, can you speak into the microphone? What did it feel like? to be the prince of Egypt and then come out. I, I want to go over to Elijah and say, excuse, excuse me, Mr. Elijah, would you mind telling me what it was like to stand in the face of the Cruella de Vil of the Old Testament, Jezebel? What did that feel like, man? Luke tells us that they were discussing Jesus' departure, and then suddenly, Peter's blurting out, let's build some tents, and the father says, be quiet because it took a supernatural revelation from heaven to get Peter to be quiet. <laughs> Listen to him. And they looked up, and there was just Jesus. Sometimes when you become a new Christian, you listen a lot, and then you grow in your faith, and you stop listening. Do some of us need to start listening again and say, God, I've not arrived yet. Take me forward in you. I don't want to camp in my current understanding of you. Stretch my mind, my heart. And then it's a theological point, but it's, it's a vital one. Let's affirm that this truth, as Moses and Elijah disappear, it shows us that the greatest revelation of God is in Christ. That doesn't mean that the law and the prophets are not important. We need the whole of the Bible. But ultimately, if we want to know what God looks like, we look at Christ. John uh, John in his, excuse me, Hebrews makes it clear, Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Hebrews chapter 1. Ultimately, if you want to know what God looks like, according to the New Testament, look at Jesus. Well, we're going to think for a few moments about moving on. In the Vatican gallery, Raphael's last painting hangs. Uh, many say that they think that this is his greatest 
work, this portrait of the transfigured Christ, Moses and Elijah, the stunned and sleepy disciples. But then down below in the valley, a demon-possessed boy, the next episode that they're going to encounter, which Pastor Dick Foth is going to talk about uh, next weekend. You see, they had to move on. They had to move on. And moving on is a phrase I want to use carefully because sometimes we can use it unhelpfully. We go to someone who's suffered grief. They've lost a, their, their husband, their wife, their child. And we go to them six months later and we say, have you, have you moved on yet? Forgetting that moving on is a process as well as a decision. It might take a lot of time. But I do think that there are marker moments when we can say, I want to move on. God help me. So Lord, as we take some moments now to respond to your word, would you be with us? Walk with us through this moment, we pray, that some things will happen here in the next few seconds that will profoundly affect us in Jesus' name. Would you open your eyes, please? And I want you to know that in a few moments, I'm going to strike this tent. I'm going to tear it down as a symbolic action. And in a moment, I'm going to invite you to stand if you're able, if you are saying you want to move on from endlessly comparing yourself with others, especially maybe in your spiritual life. And if you're saying, God, I want to move on from that. In a few moments, I'm going to invite you to stand. I want to invite you to stand. In fact, you can begin to do it whenever you like. If you, if you hear if you hear, yeah, that's me. I, I want to identify with this symbolic moment. You can stand any time if you're able. If you're saying, I want, to, I want to move on in this story. I want God to know that I want to do more listening than I've done. I, I, I'm not happy to camp where I am spiritually right now. And I deliberately feel like I've been doing that. I want to strike the tent. I want to move on. You can be among those who stand. You might want to stand if you're saying, God, I want to be faithful to you, not addicted to excitement, but be faithful in the boring times. That might apply to church. It might apply to friendship. It might apply to marriage. It might well be this weekend that there are couples here and you're going through a really rough time right now. And somehow together you want to make a statement to God to say, we're not here for the excitement. We're together in covenant. And we want to move on from any immaturity that there has been. Maybe you want to move on from the God of the C minus, could do better. Maybe you've always been raised with the idea that God is basically fundamentally mad with you. And you have to jump through all kinds of hoops to get a smile. And you're saying, God, heal that in me. You're the God who says, this is my son, I love him. So in a moment, I'm going to strike the tent. I wish it was as easy that we could just fix it by striking a tent and saying a prayer. But I believe that we can make a declaration before the Lord today. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you don't understand all this stuff and you just know that you want to know Jesus. You want to know his grace and forgiveness. But more than that, because becoming a Christian is not just a ticket to heaven. 
It's about deciding to live under his lordship. And that, maybe that's a, a process that you've been in, but now is a moment to kind of seal that deal and say, yeah, this is, this is what I want. This is who I'm going to be. I move on. I'm moving forward with him. Then you, you can feel free. Anybody else needs to stand before I strike the tent? Only stand if this is a significant moment. Why don't you tell the Lord why it is that you're standing? Just whisper in your heart. So Lord, you know our stories. You know where we've been camping out. Every person that is responding to you, you know. You folks who are standing, I want you to open your eyes. I just want you to see this moment and allow God maybe to imprint it on your memory. It's simply a symbol. It's what it is. Lord, I'm standing today. I'm the preacher and I'm standing. I want you to take me beyond that default idea that you're the God of the C minus. Heal that in me. And in Jesus' name, we strike the tent. ask you whether we're on the mountain or going to the valley to lead us forward we agree together it's in your strength Lord you're stronger than we are and everyone said Amen so Lord with the affirmation not just of our intentions to move on but embracing your strength we walk out of here by faith as they walk down the mountainside, Jesus, with you. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great weekend. Wonderful to see you. Don't forget, prayer team are here. If we can pray with you, we would love to. Love you guys. God bless you.